Hello and welcome back to Letterday Ramblings. First off, spoilers for season three of The Good Place. All along, I've only been looking at one duck, but there's millions of ducks in here. In 1534, Douglas Weingar of Hawkehurst, England, gave his grandmother roses for her birthday. He picked them himself, walked them over to her. She was happy. Boom, 145 points. Now, yeah, here we go. In 2009, Doug Ewing of Skaggsville, Maryland, also gave his grandmother a dozen roses, but he lost four points. Why? Because he ordered roses using a cell phone that was made in a sweatshop. The flowers were grown with toxic pesticides, picked by exploited migrant workers, delivered from thousands of miles away, which created a massive carbon footprint, and his money went to a billionaire racist CEO who sends his female employees pictures of his genitals. Woo! That is a very odd thing to cheer. Don't you understand? The bad place isn't tampering with points. They don't have to. Because every day, the world gets a little more complicated, and being a good person gets a little harder. So I can fill the judge in on what we've learned. Your Honor, I once stood in front of you and said I thought there was something wrong with the point system. I finally know what it is. Life now is so complicated. It's impossible for anyone to be good enough for the good place. I know you don't like to learn too much about life on Earth to remain impartial, but these days, just buying a tomato at a grocery store means that you are unwittingly supporting toxic pesticides, exploiting labor, contributing to global warming. Humans think that they're making one choice, but they're actually making dozens of choices they don't even know they're making. So these are two scenes from season three of The Good Place and I watched them for the first time in 2019, when I was still Mormon. So these these ideas, these concepts that they introduced in these scenes um, were a big reveal for the show at the time, and it shocked me uh, because I'd never thought about it before. I mean, granted, I was 15, um, but that was one of the first times that I was exposed or introduced to the idea of ethical consumption. And at the time, I decided to store it in like a corner cabinet of my brain and wanted to get back to it at some later date. Like, I didn't, like, think about it. I didn't consider it because, I mean, I wasn't much of a consumer at the time anyway. I didn't buy a lot of stuff because, I mean, I was living with my parents. So I basically chose to ignore it and just, you know, I'll think about that later at some point was what I did. Uh, and I think being Mormon uh, contributed to this avoidant, uh, you know, behavior because I, I didn't want to admit to the idea or the possibility that I hadn't been a perfect or even a good or great person um, for all the time before this without realizing it. Um, because, you know, when you're a Mormon, you assume that, you know, if you follow all the rules, if you follow the commandments and covenants and, you know, everything that the church has, you know, w wants from you, that you must be a good person. You know, if you pay your tithing, you know, you must be doing enough good in the world because, of course, it all goes to charity. You know, you don't question it and you assume, you know, I'm following the rules. I'm a good person. Um, yeah, so fast forward to my faith crisis at the very beginning of 2021, maybe like a little bit like December 2020, whatever. Um, and I rewatched The Good Place, which I actually have about four times uh, in total since 
uh, watching it for the first time. And, you know, as my moral system is changing, you know, my worldview is changing through my faith crisis and everything is kind of falling apart at the seams. Um, <laughs> and the realization of these scenes hits me like a pile of bricks. Like, <laughs> um, I realize, yeah, we're, we are actually making dozens of choices when we think we're making one. And, you know, the there's no way that all those choices could add up to, like, a net positive value. You know, for example, in the points system, which they use in The Good Place, you know, they, they have this idea of the afterlife that, you know, every action and every choice that you make on your life in your life on Earth has a value, a positive or a negative value. And then at the end of your life, your total, you know, the total value of your life, your life determines whether you go to the good place or the bad place. So, you know, the idea of heaven or hell, basically. Um, and just, you know, there's no, there's no possibility that all these, these actions and, you know, under, of course, under capitalism and all the exploitation that goes on could have a net positive value. So that means, you know, like is the whole you know, plot twist in The Good Place in season three, that no one has gone to The Good Place in 500 years, you know, since uh, about like when Christopher Columbus um, discovered, quote unquote, uh, the Americas. And that is really when, you know, the slave trade and stuff started happening and really capitalism came to a start. Um, and that is when everything basically went to shit. <laughs> um, very bluntly speaking, but you know what I mean. Um, so, right. For, so from there on out, like, the beginning of, like, halfway through my faith crisis, I just started toying with this idea. It's like, oh, well, shit, I'm not a good person. Um, I need to fix this. I need to, you know, uh, minimize my impact on the world, let's say. And I felt, you know, from there on out, I, I felt like I was carrying a massive weight. Like, every action that I did, every everything that I bought carried a huge weight with it. Um, I felt like a deep responsibility for my actions, which is ultimately a good thing, I would argue, uh, even though it's not always like nice to live with, but um, you know, I felt responsible for my actions, for any suffering that I may have brought into the world without even realizing, just because I'm part of a broken system. And I think it's important that everyone realizes that, um, because it does, you know, if you're conscious of the problem, there's a bigger chance that you might fix it or come close to fixing it or at least, you know, make it a little better, I don't know. At the very least, not make it any worse. Um, but you know, at some point when you start thinking about this, um, you, you come across the idea of like, well, humans have a negative impact just for existing, so why bother doing anything? You know, it's this nihilistic thing that you slip into, this, this, um, this dread, this hopelessness, this appeal to futility, and, you know, it's very easy to slip into that, and I have a few times, it's like, what's the point to any of this, why am I even trying, you know, everything's fucked up anyway, you know, the world is, 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 yeah, um, why, why try? But, in the end, I, we have to try, you know, that's the thing, we have to try, and that's what I'm doing, and that's what I want to, like, come across in this episode, I want everyone to try. <laughs> Because that's all we can do, really. Um, so, okay. Uh, on with the background, the story, whatever. Okay, and so when I realized this, when I, you know, whatever, <laughs> I started researching, uh, reading books, watching documentaries, listening to podcasts, which is how I deal with, 
you know, stuff like this. It felt like my faith crisis, but like the positive equivalent to that, like the, the opposite of it, because I wasn't tearing anything down necessarily. I was building something up. I was, you know, getting in touch with my own morals and really figuring out what I stand for and what I want and how I want to live my life. And, you know, the easiest way I can describe my philosophy is just that I want to leave the world better than I found it. Um, which is a very general statement, could apply to many different things, but that's kind of the point, um, I guess. And there's many things that I started reading about, but the first thing that really got the ball rolling is getting in touch with philosophy and learning about philosophy, the history of philosophy, and the different ideas that have been circulating for centuries. Um, and what I really connected to is the utilitarian idea of minimizing suffering, um, which I'll get back to later, um, but, you know, my life started changing quite drastically. It already was because of my faith crisis, but now because of this, these different ideas that I was considering and, you know, my life was really changing, my worldview and everything. Um, yeah, for the better, definitely for the better. So first, before I really get into the details of ethical consumption and what, uh, what things I specifically came across that, that I found were important uh, to talk about, I want to focus on um, how losing my religion played into all of this because, I mean, this seems a very, you know, a-religious uh, episode. I'm not really talking about it that much, but first, I want to take you through, through my thought process, you know, how I got to this point. Um, so, yeah, in February and March of this year, I started learning about the problem of evil, which is, you know, uh, the philosophical problem of, you know, why God lets evil happen in the world, why he lets suffering, uh, suffering to happen. Um, and it specifically pertains to Abrahamic religions, so, you know, uh, religions with an omnipotent God. And so I focused specifically on Christianity because that was, of course, relevant to me. And so, um, yeah, while I was learning about this, I read Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov. Um, so I was still believing when I read this, and the philosophical discussions in it uh, between the atheist brother Ivan and the Christian brother Alyosha really had an impact on me and my, you know, my train of thought regarding Christianity, because I was, I was a Christian at the time still. I had left Mormonism and I was trying to make it work as a Christian. Um, so I'll read a little bit of it now so you get a general picture of what they talked about and uh, why it was so impactful. For me, um, and I would honestly highly recommend this book, uh, The Brothers Karamazov, or even just this chapter. Like, there's this chapter and the chapter after this are brilliant. You can read them on their own; they're amazing. Um, so, okay, in this specific chapter, Rebellion, it's called. Ivan bases his argument specifically on child suffering and asks how God could permit that. Um, and so the picture Dostoevsky paints with his use of language is very visceral and it deeply affected me when I first read it. So, quote, This poor child of five was subjected to every possible torture by those cultivated parents. They beat her, thrashed her, kicked her for no reason until her body was one bruise. Then they went to greater refinements of cruelty. They shut her up all night in the cold and frost in a privy, and because she didn't ask to be taken up at night, they smeared her face and filled her mouth with excrement. And it was her mother. Her mother did this. And that mother could sleep, 
hearing the poor child's groans. Can you understand why a little creature who can't even understand what is being done to her should beat her little aching heart with her tiny fist in the dark and the cold and weep her meek, unresentful tears to dear, kind God to protect her? Do you understand that, friend and brother, you pious and humble novice? Do you understand why this infamy must be and is permitted? Without it, I am told, man could not have existed on earth, for he could not have known good and evil. Why should he know that diabolical good and evil when it costs so much? Why, the whole world of knowledge is not worth that child's prayer to dear, kind God. End quote. Okay, so let that sink in for a second. It's a very powerful passage and I love it. It's so good. But okay, um, so as a believer, I try to find a way to justify this. Um, this really shook me. Like, I cried the first time I read this. It was a lot. Um, so, okay. I wanted to find a way to justify the suffering of innocent beings, because that was really the problem here, because children are innocent beings, you know, in Mormonism as well. And um, so what came close uh, was the free will argument, for example, which says that God gave us free will to act, whether for good or for evil, and that there has to be opposition in all things, and so that it is basically necessary for innocent beings to suffer as a sacrifice to free will, if you will. Um, yeah, so that it was necessary in some weird way that God could not circumvent, I guess. Um, and that, you know, that was based also on the idea that in the end, the suffering is worth the free will. So the immense amounts of suffering happening in the world are worth us having free will. Um, which is an assumption, which is not necessarily accurate. <laughs> Uh, at least to me, like, it started to make less and less sense the more I thought about it, you know, because if I were a god, which, I mean, is blasphemy to think about, of course, um, if I were a god, I would not have created this world exactly as it is now. Like, this does not seem like the best idea. But, you know, you know, that's an assumption. The assumption of worth is a very important thing um, within Christianity, because however much you suffer in this life, you know, you'll go to heaven and you'll be happy for eternity. So that seems like, you know, a fair trade. But of course, there's no way to guarantee that. So you're just, you know, a martyr for your whole life, and then you die, and then what? Then what, you know? Uh, so that's not a good justification to me, and it wasn't convincing to me, and it's still... You know, people have to live with that, you know, with the things that they've experienced in their life. People have to live with trauma, with PTSD, with, with you know, rape, with anything. And, you know, that, even if it's all better in heaven, like, does that make it okay that it happened? You know, so there's this whole discussion around that, which I, I can get into, but I won't. Um, so, okay. But the first easy way that you can refute the free will argument is by looking at the concept of natural evil, um, which is suffering, which is not inflicted by people through wrong or bad choices, but by, you know, nature, by impartial and uncaring nature itself. Um, so think natural disasters, floods, droughts, tsunamis, forest fires, or uh, things like deadly diseases, plagues and stuff, you know, which is uh, very relevant right now, um, come to think of it. 
And, you know, so I focused on that and I thought about it, like, why would God let plagues happen, you know? And in the scriptures, it's, you know, they've happened all throughout history for whatever reason. Uh, God didn't stop them. And in scriptures, it's insinuated that, you know, he created them, that God created them to punish the wicked. But that obviously made no sense to me. You know, I thought about all the times that God had killed whole populations in the Bible, in the Book of Mormon, and I thought, but what about the children? You know, because even if he didn't kill them because they were innocent, he would have left them to die because no one was taking care of them. You know, so it makes no sense to kill off these whole populations, and it's also very unlikely that they are all terrible people. You know, it's just, it's so cartoony, and it's so unrealistic, and it just, the character of God completely, completely changes in those scenes, in those stories. It just didn't make any sense. Like, this loving God is doing this right now? Really? Really? You want me to worship this guy? <laughs> you know? Um, so yeah, the, the question, what about the children? Uh, what about innocent beings? Really? came to me. So the free will defense, it was not airtight. Not at all. Not at all, actually. But there are more arguments against uh, the free will defense, um, which Dostoevsky actually explores in the subsequent chapter of the Brothers Karamazov, uh, the Grand Inquisitor. And this chapter is basically, you know, a hypothetical story about what if Jesus came back to Earth in 15th century Spain? So, uh, well, it turns out that he would get arrested uh, by a Spanish inquisitor. So the Inquisitor sits Jesus down um, in jail, I guess, or in his room or whatever, and starts giving this amazing monologue about how he, Jesus has pretty much doomed humanity uh, for all time for giving us free will. Um, and he says, quote, Didst thou forget that man prefers peace and even death to freedom of choice and the knowledge of good and evil? Nothing is more seductive for a man than his freedom of choice, but nothing is a greater cause of suffering." End quote. So specifically that last part, that last, very last line about how free will is actually the greatest cause of suffering in the world. And it really hit me. You know, I thought, surely an all-powerful God could think of a better way to do this. And, you know, this world cannot be the best world that he can create. Um, because the more I thought about it, about all the atrocities that happen in the world, like slavery, human trafficking, genocide, murder, rape, child abuse, etc. You know, the more I thought about everything, the less I could accept the idea that humans having free will was worth all of that, all of that suffering. And I just, I couldn't, I couldn't get it, I couldn't get through that. You know, that was it for me. And, you know, once I admitted that to myself, my whole worldview, again, started shifting. Um, and so that was basically the last straw before giving up on Christianity and the idea of an all-powerful God altogether. So, okay, so, um, yeah, that was a bit of slightly necessary background or context to understand my thought process. Uh, surrounding my current philosophy and my ideas um, surrounding ethical consumption, which is what I actually wanted to talk about, but this was like a whole tangent about the problem of evil, which I hope you enjoyed. I guess I hope it was interesting. <laughs> so I guess what I briefly want to talk about next is uh, utilitarianism, which is uh, 
a philosophical school of thought which was founded in the 19th century by Jeremy Bentham, if I'm correct, um, and was, yeah, it was based in consequentialism. And you can kind of hear it in the name of consequentialism, is that uh, the, it's a moral theory based on the consequences of an action. So the consequences of that action constitute the value of that action, whether positive or negative. And the opposite of this theory, which was also, you know, uh, popular in the you know 18th, 19th century was uh, deontological ethics, is what it's called. Um, I think it was founded by Immanuel Kant. I might be wrong. He at least popularized it. But, you know, um, deontology holds that actions have value like inherently in themselves, which is kind of like an, a religious idea as well, um, because God infused those actions with a certain meaning and a certain value. Um, meanwhile, you know, as atheists, I guess you can still believe in objective morality, but it's harder. I don't know, don't expect me to know everything. Like, I'm very much a newbie when it comes to philosophy. It's just very interesting to me. I'm just not an expert by any means. So take everything I say with a grain of salt and, you know, do your own research if you feel so inclined. Definitely, of course. Okay, so that's what deontology means, and Kantian deontology specifically um, has several values universal values that you can apply to everything. So for example, uh, there's the categorical imperative, which has two things, two, you know, main rules, I guess, if you will, like principles, I think is the better word. Um, it's like the first one is that um, one's actions should be uh, undertaken as if you could make them universally applicable. So for example, murder is wrong because if you would go around murdering everybody or if everyone would go around murdering everybody, there would be no one left. And so that is not a positive action. That's not a good thing. And so that is wrong. That is kind of what Kant says in a very basic form. So it should be universally applicable. And, um, you know, for example, if everyone were kind to each other, that's a positive, right? Because then there would be harmony. Everyone would work together. Everyone, you know, would be happy, healthy, etc. And then um, the second principle, it says, like, you have to treat humans as ends in themselves, which is basically the golden rule. You know, that's just treat others as you would like to be treated. And yeah, that is also universally applicable. So it's part of the, the first thing. It's kind of a subcategory, but it's important to emphasize, I think. So yeah, I think it's it's very simple, you know, on its on its surface, on its basis, it's very simple. I would not recommend you go read any of Kant's books because they are impossible to decipher. He's just a really bad writer, good philosopher, bad writer. Um, but okay, so utilitarianism is kind of the opposite of that, although I don't personally think that these two philosophies are mutually exclusive, which I would like to um, emphasize as well. Like they can both work together. Um, it's, I mean, it depends. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> okay. So, um, utilitarianism. Okay. Utilitarians believe, uh, kind of the purpose of morality is to make life better by increasing the amount of good things that happen, you know, such as pleasure and happiness in the world and decreasing the amount of bad things that happen, such as pain or unhappiness. It's very, it's very simple. It's just like a pain, uh, pleasure kind of thing. Although it's mostly about um, first of all, it's about minimizing harm, and then then it is about maximizing pleasure or happiness or goodness. So that's a secondary thing. So first of all, mo most importantly, it is about minimizing harm and your impact on the world as a human being. So, I mean, I feel like both deontology and 
utilitarianism could kind of work together, although it kind of depends because um, Kant really harps on, you know, um, you know, there's there's flaws uh, flaws to both really because Kant really harps on rules like specific rules which you have to follow no matter what. So for example, lying lying would be a hard rule like that's not good because if everyone would do it, you know, the world would fall apart, society would fall apart. But in some cases, in some situations, it could still be morally acceptable to lie by other standards, by utilitarian standards, for example. Um, or for example, uh, a flaw of utilitarianism is that the end justifies the means. So, so very technically speaking, you could justify some pretty bad actions um, by you know holding onto that and saying, but the end in the end it will be worth it, which is you know not not a great <laughs> not a great concept. And that's why you shouldn't necessarily strictly adhere to any philosophy because there's bound to be exceptions and stuff. So it's really just kind of learn from all of them and all the different ideas um, that people have thought of throughout history, philosophy, whatever, and kind of incorporate them into your daily life, your daily choices, and you know figure out what works and what doesn't. You know, it's all a process. It's a process of learning and educating yourself and, you know, keep improving uh, yourself and your actions, your choices, and your life and the lives of others, um, which is so, which is really inspiring to me. And that is also what inspired, you know, the ethical consumption, which I still need to get to. It's 25 minutes into the episode and I haven't gotten to it yet. But I think this is important to have like a background in philosophy in some context. Um, okay, whatever. Let's, let's get on with it. So uh, there are several things that I'd like to talk about. I'm not entirely sure how to structure this and I've kind of like lost track at this point. Like I had a script and I've kind of gone off it and now I'm just <laughs> figuring it out. Okay, um, but okay, all the things that I want to talk about are all part of the umbrella term of ethical consumption. So the very first thing I want to talk about, which might be a bit controversial depending on who you are, you know, listener, um, but it is veganism. I want to talk about veganism. Okay, so hear me out, please. So this summer I'd already uh, left the church and I wanted to learn more about secular ethics, secular morality, because I'd, you know, I'd never considered it before leaving. And so I was researching that and I was reading lots of books and I came across this one, um, Eating Animals by Jonathan Safran Foer. And I knew exactly what it was going to be, you know? Um, I was like, oh, this guy is going to try to convince me to stop eating animals, but I won't because they taste so good, you know? I was already defensive when I read the title, and that's what really, like, en <laughs> encouraged me to read it. I was like, I can withstand this, you know? His arguments won't be solid enough to persuade me. Um, but then I read it and I was like, holy shit, I never thought about this. You know, animal rights is not something you really think about in your daily life, um, but if you consider it, like, the thing that really made it click for me, which, I mean, might just be me, it might not for other people, but it's the idea that we are, you know, slaughtering about a hundred billion animals each year. We are taking their life and, you know, we are breeding them into existence only to kill them. Um, and, you know, taking their young and torturing them and, you know, uh, locking them up in cages, and I could go into more detail if I wanted to. Um, you know, I 
I don't, I mean, I do feel kind of a responsibility to educate people. But there's so many documentaries about this, you know, they have insider footage inside these farms, um, standard practice farms, you know, factory farms, which is where 99% of all meat and animal products come from, um, you know, and the conditions that these animals are in are downright horrible and incredibly cruel and legally so. It's just, people want to argue that, you know, there's humane ways to do this, and I guess if you want to believe that, I, I mean, sure, but is there really, like, really think about it, is there a humane way to kill someone? Because these animals, you know, they are their own person, they have a personality, they might not be as smart as we are, but they are sentient, um, they feel pain, they feel emotions, they are not as sophisticated, but is that really what matters? I think the ability to feel and the ability to suffer is really what matters when it comes to the value of a being, you know, because if they do experience that, and if they do also experience a will to live, which is obvious, which has been proven, you know, they run away from harm, they want to keep on living. Have you ever seen a suicidal pig is my question, you know. Um, animals want to live and they have a right to their life. I think, and we have, we don't have a right to take it away from them unless it's out of necessity. And that is not the case here, you know? Unless, you know, if you're stranded on an island and the only thing you can eat is like a pig or something, then I guess that's a different situation. Or if you're in a third world country and that's the only thing that you can get and their crops aren't growing, whatever, then that's a different situation. But in the Western world, right now, we have enough options we have the choice, the moral choice, not to inflict more harm on innocent creatures than we have to. And the only real reason that people do this, and you, most people don't even think about it, but the only justification that you can think of after everything, after arguing for so long uh, about animal rights and all this, is that they just taste good. Animals just taste good. And I'm not arguing against that, but that is not a reason to kill something. It's not a justification. It's not a good justification. And that's the only thing I had left because I wanted to keep eating meat. You know, I loved it. It's great. Animal products are great. They taste great. That's the point. But I don't think you can ethically justify them. Uh, I don't think so. That is kind of where I landed after, you know, uh, arguing with myself for, for really long. It was a really tough process, but I'm really happy with the decision that I've made. And I think it is ethically the most sound thing to do, at least for me. And so that's basically the ethical argument for veganism in a nutshell. Um, you know, you might may ask, like, why, why does it matter, you know, if I use eggs or, or milk and stuff? And, you know, I could go into detail about that, but you could just uh, look it up. There's exploitation going on in those industries, and in the end, the animals are still slaughtered. Uh, they are not, you know, they cannot choose what they do with their life. We are still in control of them. We are, you know, it's unrighteous dominion, if you want the Mormon term. If you really think about it, you know, we have been conditioned to think that we have the right to control their lives and whether they live or die, but it's not, you know, we are, we don't own them, you know, they own themselves, which is like, if you've never thought about animal rights, this might sound really weird and, you know, like I'm quote-unquote animal lover and I honestly don't love animals that much I just think they have the right to live you know they should have the right to life that's the only thing really and I don't think they they are as important as humans are necessarily I just think they are more important than our taste buds 
the minimum that you need to believe, uh, you know, for animal rights, for animal liberation. Um, and, you know, I, I'd love it if more people would ask themselves that question because that question was really a wake-up call for me. And I, I didn't want to give up animal products. Like, trust me, I really didn't. And, um, you know, but it was the right thing to do, I think. And you can make that judgment for yourself, but keep in mind that, you know, think of the victims and look at the footage and look at what you're doing um, by your actions. Like, they're having an impact. You can keep pretending that you, you're not having an impact and, you know, nothing would change if you would stop eating meat. But in the end, we're still living under capitalism and you can vote with your dollar. That's what we do, you know. By buying these products, we are keeping the companies alive, we are keeping the industries alive. And so it's a kind of, think of it as a kind of boycott. Um, and you know, the less demand there is for a product, the less supply there will be. And that is just how things work within economics. And so you will definitely have some kind of impact. Um, and just ethically, by principle, I feel like it's the right thing to do. So that's the ethical argument, and that might strike a chord with you, it might not strike a chord with you. I guess that's fine. I hope it kind of did, on some level at least, to reduce your consumption of animal products. Um, and to, or to really just consider it, just think about it for a second, please. Um, but there's more arguments. And the second one I want to talk about is the environment. The environmental argument for veganism, or for, you know, reducitarianism, which is what people call just eating less meat meat especially, but just animal products in general. So agriculture as a whole, so both animal agriculture and plant, you know, crops agriculture, um, accounts for about 18%, 18.5% of all global greenhouse gas emissions. So that's both. And to compare this to, for example, uh, the, the transport sector, which is, you know, airplanes, trains, cars, all of that, which accounts for 16% of global greenhouse gas emissions, which is less than all of agriculture. Um, but the thing is, animal agriculture is inherently incredibly inefficient because we are feeding half of the world's crops to animals instead of feeding, and then, you know, feeding the animals to humans instead of just feeding all the crops directly to humans, which is what, being, what would be more efficient. And technically, we actually have enough food enough plants to feed the entire human population right now, but we are not distributing it well because we are feeding all of it to animals. So technically, if you would end animal agriculture, you could fix world hunger, um, which I'm like hypothetically speaking, but you know what I mean, you know? Um, and more about that, you know, meat itself, you know, it takes an inc incredible, like massive amounts of water to process meat. Um, and, you know, that is wasting a lot of water that we need, of course. Uh, so there's just, it's so wasteful all through the process, and it's incredibly bad for the environment. And, you know, more people should be talking about this, which, I mean, environmentalists are talking about. Most environmentalists are at least vegetarian, which is great. And another thing is that, you know, there are many emerging economies in the world uh, which are, you know, westernizing themselves, and they are starting to adapt to a more western diet involving more more meats, because meats are really a luxury product, um, as opposed to, you know, beans, legumes, grains, stuff like that, which are more re readily available, and 
um, one of the most cheap, like the cheapest foods on the market, basically, which I don't know, people say that being vegan, it must be very expensive and that it's very privileged. You have to be very privileged to be vegan, but that is not necessarily the case. It really depends on how you fill in your diet and what you choose to buy. Um, that's kind of a side tangent. So yeah, we, it's not sustainable. We can't sustain the entire human population on a Western diet as it exists today. So just for environmental reasons, we need to cut down significantly, if not just completely stop consuming meat slash animal products. Um, so that is the environmental argument for veganism or at least vegetarianism. Um, you know, the only real argument for full veganism is animal rights, is you know, the ethical argument. And not everyone will be convinced by that, and I understand that, and and I do believe in freedom of choice. It's not like, you know, you can do what you want to do, but keep in mind that there are victims here, not only the animals, but humans ourselves, because we are messing up the planet um, by doing this, by buying the products that we do, and I just want people to keep those consequences in mind, and, you know, I, I felt really guilty when I figured this out, when I found out that, you know, I'm maybe not the best person for doing this and you know even though I didn't realize it um, so I'll stop and the weight kind of fell off my shoulders and I feel a lot better even though of course I can't be doing everything right you know I can't be perfectly vegan I can't be a perfect person uh, per and, and consume completely ethically um, because the thing is you know my taxes still go to the government and the government is subsidizing the the meat and dairy industry and you know it's still there's still messed up things going on but we still have the choice between more ethical and less ethical and still there and so i don't believe the nihilistic idea of well nothing matters because it's all going to shit anyway and you know i get the sentiment but it's not it's not true and we still have a choice to do better rather than worse and that is what i want to communicate with people today, it's important. It's an important idea, even if not with veganism, with other things that I will now talk about. But yeah, veganism is the concept that really opened my eyes to this idea of ethical uh, consumption or consumerism, and um, made me think about you know our place as humans, and you know because I mean going back to the ethical argument, I think the idea that humans preside, let's use the word preside, you know they they rule over animals. Um, it's archaic and it's religious, I feel like, because that's what God said. Oh, God created these animals for us to eat. They are for us to use. They are commodities for us. But if you look at it from a secular lens, which was, which is what I do, you know, we're all, I'm, I'm an atheist. People listening to this are usually atheists. Um, and yeah, we're just creatures. We happen to live on the same planet, on the same earth. And just because we are smarter than them, just because we have more cognitive abilities. That doesn't give us the right to treat them like this. You know, it's not might makes right. That is not a good argument. Because it's the same argument that people have used for, you know, racism and sexism, and that didn't hold up, you know? And now this type of discrimination against animals is speciesism. It's just a different kind. And I feel like we'll, you know, we'll move past it at some point in the future. It's just one of those, you know, social rights issues social justice issues. And, you know, talking about uh, intelligence, a pig is about as smart as a three-year-old child. So that is something to think about, um, because if you, view, if you view animals as on the same moral level, as a child, 
it really changes things like it really did for me like i it's just really hard to get past that conditioning uh, that you've had especially as a religious person to get past that you know but we're better than them we're superior to animals you know and you can still believe that you're superior to animals that is not necessarily the problem although i would personally say it is but the biggest problem is that we think that their life is less important than our taste buds that is really the core of it that's all i'm saying and i don't like i wish it wasn't such a controversial issue um, but I really wanted to speak about it here. I think I've made all the points that I needed to or wanted to. There's a lot more I could say. Uh, I could talk about nutrition, whatever. Um, but okay, there's one more thing that I do want to touch on. It's that, you know, people accuse, you know, vegans of, you know, not being perfect. You know, you can't stop all harm to animals because, you know, animals are harmed uh, accidentally by, you know, toxic pesticides and stuff when you're growing crops and everything etc etc just arguments like that and my answer to that is that just because um, there are things that you can't control that you cannot control as a consumer uh, doesn't mean that you don't have to do anything about the things that you can control um, and that is just the argument that I'm making it's that you might not be perfect but you could be better you could be a better consumer and that is what ethical consumption is about it's not about being perfect it's about being conscious and trying to do your best as far as is practically possible, of course. Because I do understand that uh, veganism, um, being vegan is more difficult for some people than others, uh, depending on many conditions, many you know factors in their lives. For example, money, of course, is one. Or allergies, for example, if you're allergic to some of the foods that are prominent in vegan diets like soy. And then there's social pressure, which is also uh, a factor because vegans are often seen as weird, um, perceived as weird. And some people just don't want that stress in their life. They don't want to marginalize themselves. And, you know, sometimes it's hard and I do understand that. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's kind of difficult to, to judge for other people, so I'm not going to. Um, but I just think everyone in their own situation should do the best they can or they feel that is possible for them. So if that means, you know, only eating animal products on weekends, or for example, only eating them if you eat out with other people, because being vegan is notoriously difficult if you go out to restaurants, um, because there are often no vegan options or only vegetarian options, or you could give up everything except cheese. Many people find it hard to give up cheese. Uh, you know, there are so many different iterations of veganism or something close to veganism because you know just reducing your consumption of it uh, in general like the more people do that the more of an impact that has and that's easier for people you know instead of cutting it all out um, they're more likely to just um, reduce their intake and that overall collectively has a big impact on the industries and I don't want to discourage people if they're taking a step in the right direction you know like of course in my eyes, it would be best if you could be vegan, but if for any reason you can't, so allergies or like you're, uh, if you're having a hard time with like money or you're very busy or stressed out about your job and everything and you know, your life is not really going that well and you're having mental health issues and you don't want, you know, to stress about what you eat as well, or you're broke and you can't, um, you know, buy, um, many vegan alternatives for uh, omnivorous foods that you like even though that is you know the, c the consistent part of your diet and you don't have the time or the energy right now 
to completely change your diet uh, and include different meals and different uh, food groups, etc. Um, you know, there's a variety of different situations you could be in that would prevent you from being vegan, or at least, you know, you feeling that you can't go vegan. Um, and I, I respect that, and that's fine. You know, there's that's not the only option that is there for you. You know, you could go, you know, vegetarian and still make an impact. You could just reduce your intake or eat less in general, and you would still make a difference. Because I don't think that this is a matter of, you know, getting a few people who want to or who could or who feel open to it um, go vegan. I think it's more of like a a movement, like uh, collectively, societally, to, you know, um, gradually minimize the consumption of these products. And I think most people would be more convinced by the environmental argument for this. Um, and, you know, that's fine. And that does help. It does. So I'm grateful for anyone who is willing to make a change in their life um, because, you know, it's it can be difficult. I mean, for me, it was surprisingly easy and I, I was, you know, I was dreading it at first and I thought it would be really hard to find, um, you know, different products and, and whatever, that everything would be very expensive and, you know, I'm a broke college student and it went a lot easier than I thought. It's probably because I live in a Western European country as well and there's a lot of stuff available and... You know, I have some financial support from my parents. Uh, not a lot, but, you know. Um, and, yeah, so there's there's many different situations that people could be in, and I won't judge you for any choice you end up making. I just want to make people aware of what's going on and the arguments and philosophy behind veganism, because I think it's really important, and it's something I'm really passionate about, and I just... I want people to be aware of what they're doing and um, make informed decisions. So yeah, I hope you got something out of it, listener, right? Um, and yeah, just just think about it. Just turn it over in your mind and, you know, consider what you can do for the animals, for the planet, for yourself, ultimately. And now on to the next topic I wanted to talk about. You know, some people are less willing to change up their diets, which is something you do like daily and it's, you know, it's a fundamental part of your life and you don't want to change that extremely or whatever. And I understand that. And so some people would be more inclined to um, regularly give to charity because it doesn't constitute a lifestyle change, but it does make a difference in the world uh, by contributing to these causes. And, you know, for example, the elimination of factory farming or um, at least uh, improving the conditions of these animals that are in there. Uh, and that, of course, is is a win. You know, it's better than nothing, and it does do something, and it does help. And just you know, let's talk about giving to charity in general, of course, um, because many people are intimidated by it, and I, you know, I'm kind of too, and I used to be a lot as well. And, you know, especially you know when you're Mormon, you think, oh well, I give to the church, I give tithing, I give, uh, you know, fast offerings. Those go to you know, charities, you know, at least half of it or something, you know, after all the church costs, the remainder goes to, to charity, but it does not. Like we know, like I've talked about before on this podcast, that is not true, no matter how much you want to believe it is. So what could you do to make an impact on the world through charity? And I think what would be a significant psychological thing 
to bring up is that people are more likely, generally speaking, to give money to, you know, a specific person or, for example, you know, uh, a fundraiser or a GoFundMe page for like a sick child who needs uh, medical attention, surgery, stuff like that, like causes that have a face to them. You know, it's more personal, like, oh, this specific child, this specific person is suffering and we need to help. Whereas, you know, it's harder to give to a more vague, for the lack of a better word, uh, cause. For example, you know, helping uh, to extinguish malaria or help girls in Africa uh, go to school, stuff like that. Like many people would be helped and affected through these charities, but it's so general and it's so like not that specific uh, that people are less likely to give. And I think that is important to take into account and important to recognize your own uh, biases. Because, you know, if you think logically about this, you think, okay, how could I do the most good with this money, with this dollar? How could I be more effective in my altruism, and that's why there's there's now this whole movement uh, founded by Peter Singer called Effective Altruism, and it researches the most effective charities, you know, the most cost-efficient charities, you know, who do the most good with one dollar, who help the most people, um, and that's great. And you can look at these and the lists that they've made, you know, they've made analyses of different charities, you know, this is exactly how they spend their money, and this is, you know, where your money would be going, how your money would be spent. And, you know, that transparency really helps in convincing people to give more. And that is very important. Because, you know, once I started looking into this, you know, I, I looked at all these causes, all these different charities for different things. And I'm like, wow, I'm actually really fortunate to even be able to give to charity, to have a surplus at all of money. You know, even as a broke college student, I still kind of have a surplus. You know, I, you know, just having enough to live on and a little more is luxury. And, you know, I feel very grateful for that. And, you know, I'm just, it makes me feel more happy and content with my life. Um, and so, yeah, that gives me an incentive to want to give because I want people to have a better life and I want them to at least, you know, survive, you not, not die of diseases or, or natural disasters and um, just help them out in any way I can because I feel like I owe it to them even though I don't know them I don't know exactly which people are going to be affected and they're not going to know me you know I'm not going to be rewarded for this um, you know it's just it's completely unselfish and I think that's the beauty of it and you know as a side effect it does make you feel better about yourself so if you're looking for that you know give to charity <laughs> definitely um, of course, there's always like a little um, layer of selfishness when you're doing a good deed because you do want to feel better about yourself. You want to feel like you're a good person. And that's what most people or like everyone is after. Um, and I don't think that's a bad thing. You know, you want to feel good about yourself, feel good about yourself and, you know, try to live or you should live in accordance with your own moral values as much as possible. And the more consistent um, you live with that, the more happy you feel about yourself because there's less cognitive dissonance going on. So as long as you do the most that you can, which is, you know, it's hard to define in general. Like, you know, you shouldn't be on the point of starvation uh, to give other people a better life. Uh, and sometimes you can, you know, you could, of course, spend a little bit more on yourself and, you know, indulge in luxuries and that's fine. But always keep it in the back of your mind that there are people suffering and that they need your help. Um, yeah, that's basically it.
Because again, you don't have to give huge sums of money to charity. Like just, you know, a dollar or five dollars a month is, you know, it does make a difference. And if more people start doing that because it's less intimidating, like it's a small sum of money for our standards, we will make a difference. It's just about the small things. And, um, you know, I just want to get people to understand that. Um, yeah. So if you want to know more, know more about this and, you know, uh, the specific charities that have been deemed most effective, you could just Google most effective charities, find one of these uh, pages. But for example, the website givewell.org has uh, a list of the most effective charities. You know, they've done um, research, they've done analyses, they've, you know, they've uh, looked at these charities and how they spend their money and they've deemed them most effective and most needed right now in this world, like most uh, urgent as well. Um, for example, there's uh, one about medicine to prevent malaria. Um, there's uh, supplements to prevent vitamin A deficiency uh, in third world countries as well. There's, um, you know, there's causes for childhood vaccines, which is very necessary, also prevents disease. Um, so yeah, just Look into this if you're interested, if you feel like you want to figure out how to have a maximum impact with the minimum amount of money. Um, and yeah, just look into it and um, consider it for yourself. Think about it. Um, I just want to raise awareness, honestly. Uh, there are so many ways that you can help the world. And you know, the church never taught us how to actually help people. and um, our fellow creatures in general, not only the ones we're close with, but also the ones in faraway countries, um, and how to save us. Because, for example, the church does not care about climate change at all, which is like, it's one of the most pressing issues right now, of course. Um, but the church never mentions it, they don't really care, you know, they think, they probably think the second coming is coming soon, so that's, it doesn't matter that the world is going to shit. Um, yeah, but I mean, now as secular people, we could definitely do something about it. And there's several, you know, there's many charities, you know, dealing with the prevention of climate change and dealing with the ramifications of climate change. Um, but yeah, I think part of why the church doesn't seem to care is because it's led by octogenarians and uh, novogenarians. Like, is that the word? Like old, old white men uh, who won't live to see the next decade, probably. Um, and who won't deal with the consequences of their their own actions throughout their lifetime. And that sucks. That does suck. You know, you can't hold people accountable because they'll die and then we're left with the mess they made. And that sucks. And I do feel like a little resentful to previous generations uh, for this because, I mean, they've known about climate change for a long time. They knew what they were doing wasn't good, wasn't right, wasn't having a great impact on the environment, and they didn't stop. I mean, I guess it's, I understand that it's hard to make huge changes in your life for the sake of something abstract like the planet or the environment, but come on, please, like you've known about this, you knew what you had to do and just refused to change anything, and now we are cleaning up the mess they made, and 
you know, it's there's no use, you know, complaining about this now because you can't change it now. But you know, it does kind of suck, and I I feel like I'm speaking for most people here, um, especially the younger generation, and yeah, like I I do feel a dread about living on this planet in this period of time, and I do feel a dread for my future children, for future generations, and I personally really have a drive to make to try to make the world a better place for them uh, because they don't deserve this and we don't deserve this and nobody deserves this and we we should do the best we can again I, i've said that like five times by now but it's true and it's something i live by and i think other people should live by as well and another issue i want to talk about today is uh one that kind of also mixes ethical with environmental issues and that is uh, fast fashion, um, buying clothes, <laughs> generally speaking, and the companies that we buy them from, uh, which is important to consider. So as with everything I've talked about today, I think the main core and source of the problem is capitalism, because who would have guessed it leads to exploitation. Awesome. Because the only real value that these companies have um, is they want to find the most efficient way to make the most amount of money and that is what they live by and they don't like these companies are inherently amoral and oftentimes immoral think child labor but also you know not giving their workers a livable wage etc uh, etc et just working in horrible conditions and exploiting these um, these workers from third world countries because you know they can and it's efficient um, yeah, they don't, they don't care. They don't care about how it reflects on them, and most people turn a blind eye, uh, which sucks, because if more people were to say, like, hey, this is not okay, maybe they would stop, and that is why we as consumers matter, because, again, we vote with our dollars. So, um, maybe I should just name a few brands that have been problematic in this aspect, and maybe you could be more conscientious about what you buy. Um, so... Brands like, um, or companies actually, like Amazon. Amazon is the biggest offender, uh, as far as I know, um, definitely. So there's Amazon, there's Nestle, there's uh, Coca-Cola, uh, Shell, Primark, H&M, Zara. Um, so many, there's just so many. So for example, with clothes, what you could do instead of, instead of uh, you know, purchasing your clothes in these shops, um, these chains, you could um, buy them somewhere local, where they are locally manufactured, and they might be more expensive, but they're more sustainable, they're more durable, and then, you know, I think it's, you know, beneficial generally that people buy less clothes, um, because, you know, if you're really into fashion, like, I get that it's a sacrifice, but it's all, it's, it's a luxury. You know, and it's a luxury that is inflicting harm on the world and on others. Therefore, it's not ethical, and we should minimize our consumption of it. You know, it's it's the thing I've been saying this whole time. Um, but yeah. So yeah, I get that people want to keep up with trends. I know definitely, you know, many girls, and also many guys in my generation, like to keep up with, with, with trends, and they like to look beautiful. And I totally get that, you know, you want to feel confident. And usually what you like is currently in style 
and so you buy new clothes and it's also just fun to buy new clothes and I get that but an alternative I would propose is go thrift shopping like that is awesome like I love that that's what I've started doing you know just go thrifting and find whatever at your local thrift shop and there's usually some pretty cool stuff there and it's all very cheap and it's all reused so you could still buy like the brands themselves not directly from the manufacturer and then in that sense it is ethical to buy them from thrift shops you know what i'm saying it's also a lot better for the environment since you're reusing clothes like it's this not just about the ethical issues like boycotting companies but it's about you know being conscientious environmentally as well so i would definitely recommend that people do that um you know except for for example underwear or, or stuff like that you know that's that's weird to buy secondhand and especially for example bras um you know it's hard to find your size just randomly in a thrift shop so yeah but definitely also look into that look into just think about it um whatever speaks to you whatever you think you could change right now in your life to to do better now that you know better um definitely go do that. First, of course, educate yourself about the specific companies that you often buy from. Look into their standards for uh, the welfare of their workers, for example, uh, stuff like that, and also at what effect they've had on the planet, how they're de dealing with uh, green energy, if they're implementing that, or if you're, they're just, you know, using up fossil fuels and being irresponsible. And that is really the whole problem with this. You know, of course, of course, the main reason for uh, climate change is fossil fuels. And that is not something you can directly change as a consumer. Of course, you could boycott many companies, which is not necessarily always possible because there aren't enough ethical alternatives yet. Because, I, you know, the industries really have a monopoly on the market. I'm really, uh, specifically, Amazon has a huge monopoly on basically everything and that sucks but that's the situation we're in now and that's what has happened due to capitalism <laughs> again of course not that capitalism is inherently bad i mean there's ways there's ways to regulate it i guess but that's not what is happening right now and it's hard to implement now that we're already so far down the rabbit hole um in the deep end <laughs> You know, and it's hard to reverse a situation like this, but I mean, we can try and maybe at some point in the future, it will get better. Um, that's all we can hope for right now. If we take action right now, because that is really the problem that we've created um, an economic system that doesn't give a shit about morality at all. When I think, you know, morality should have its place in it, you know, ethics should have its place. It should have a say you know, it's it's important. It is very important. And I'm, in this case, talking about secular ethics. Ethics with a basis in science, with a basis in observable truth and our relationships, you know, between human beings and our societies and also a social contract, technically. Um, because as atheists and agnostics, you can have a really good basis in morality outside of the supernatural like it's not something exclusive to religion and um you know maybe if the world understands that better if we get get more of that into our governments etc then maybe there's a chance 
we can fix this because it's all based in reason. This is all very reasonable stuff that I've been telling you about this episode. Like there's a there's logic to it. You know, I have arguments that are based in the truth and what is really happening in the situations and why. Why is it important that we care about human beings being exploited? Why should we care about animals being exploited? Why is it wrong? And I think I've, you know, I've explained it reasonably well. Again, I'm not a philosopher, um, but it's also kind of a little bit of common sense, like our empathy towards other creatures generally. Um, yeah, I think that's kind of it. And again, you know, the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, really, because um, in situations like this, you need to place yourself in the position of the victim, because in situations of exploitation, there is always a victim, of course, and then, you know, behave accordingly. You know, what would you want to have happen if you were the one suffering from the situation? And, um, oh, there's this really interesting uh, theory, right, uh, John Rawls' theory of justice, um, about how to organize society. He says that society should be organized in a way that it doesn't matter which position or which part of that society you end up uh, living in, you end up being in. So that is a part of the fairness principle. So let's imagine, you know, this group of people who are sitting at a table and they're just saying, okay, uh, we need to organize a society. How do we organize the best, the fairest, most, you know, equal society? And, you know, they need to do that in a way that, you know, they don't know who who will they will end up being, you know, which part of the society, which class or which race or which gender or which sexuality they will be. They need to organize the society in a way that it's fair to everyone and it doesn't matter where you end up because there's still equality and you'll end up living a good life anyway. So that is really the ideal, is that there is no discrimination, no no judgment, no inequality, uh, segregation, you name it, right? And so since we can't build that society from the ground up right now, we need to, you know, make changes in the ones that we are living in right now. Through voting, for example, it's always important to stay politically engaged um, because, you know, structural changes and changes from, you know, from the top down instead of grassroots uh, or from the bottom up, you know, they are also very helpful and they make the changes more drastic. For example, think of um, civil rights, for example, when the Civil Rights Act was passed in the U.S. in 1963, like that was a huge change and that made a huge positive impact structurally on the entire society uh, after protests, of course, and those protests were necessary and that's why activism is necessary before we can get our government to do stuff, right? So we could blame the companies and it is their fault, we could blame the government and it is also kind of their fault, but we are the ones that really have the power to change something, potentially by changing our habits of consumption. And you know, a lot of this, you know, make, will make you feel like you're really small, like you're just one consumer, you're just one person in this sea of people, like billions of people on this planet, and you don't feel like you're making a difference, but you are. Like even if just, just a tiny, tiny, tiny little bit, 
you are making a difference and you should be happy about that and you should feel good about yourself because you are making good, responsible choices and humanity will be grateful to you for that. You know, the planet will be grateful to you. Um, you know, it's kind of the thing, the thing with the quote from Spider-Man when Uncle Ben said, with great power comes great responsibility. Yeah, it does. It does. We have some power in this situation, especially as a collective. And, you know, a collective is made out of individuals, which is important to remember. And we are all part of that, uh, which makes us to some degree powerful as consumers. So, yeah, with great power comes great responsibility. And we should be responsible and accountable and, um, you know, ethical in our consumption. So, yeah, I think that is everything I wanted to say. There, I, I guess this, there's more I could talk about, but I feel like you get the message. You know, you, you get it. You get it. So that was the episode about uh, secular ethics with a really long introduction about the problem of evil and then about ethical consumption in general. And I hope you found it interesting. I hope you learned something. I hope so many things. I mean, I hope you're willing to make some kind of change in your life if you recognize that you could do better in any of these areas um just think about it for a bit do some research look into it you know um yeah please just please and and thank you and thank you if you do end up doing that so yeah um thank you for listening it was a very very long episode to record um but yeah, I hope I'll see you next time. And yeah, have a good day and stay awesome. Goodbye. <laughs>